This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Give me a tarantula. Give me a bit of tea I'm waiting to uh, for it to cool down. Give me a tarantula. Give me a bit of Old Norse, a bit of Old English, especially now as I try to learn these languages, these earliest languages uh, that are connected to English, I suppose, that we have such abundant uh, records of, examples of, a great literature from both, uh, give me the sense in Old Norse of all the sagas, the mythological sagas, the family sagas, the uh, which you might think of as being the Icelandic versions of the Godfather with endless blood feuds going back and forth. Except every now and then, uh, Odin appears. Odin appearing sort of on a headland or on a rocky coast where you might expect to find a lighthouse nowadays. Except suddenly it's just Odin appearing there. Um, and there's some good Halloween stories in those family sagas as well. Uh, give me the... Voluspa, the wonderful first poem in the Poetic Edda that gives you the story of the world from creation uh, to the end, to the turning over, and the kids running off and uh, playing their chess set in uh, the new world. Uh, give me that sense of Old English as well, with Beowulf in the halls of... Uh, people sitting down to dinner and suddenly Grendel comes in and smashes the whole thing and give me a sense of that that lamenting sense of that doom-laden sense really which I guess is what connects it to the to the Norse material give me that doom-laden lamenting sense of the seafarer of the wanderer and give me some sort of insight into how it was that these warlike people, these tremendously martial people who were sort of living on the edge of their own abilities, who could have done just about anything to entertain themselves, and yet what they loved the most has turned out to be great literature, uh, great poetry, to imagine uh, today, uh, I don't know, any kind of military gathering and everybody sitting down and listening to a poem, give me a sense of what that world was like. But also with the Anglo-Saxons, give me a sense of their riddles, um, the strange sort of academic performances that you find in these books of riddles. Give me all of those things. And what else can we say? Give me a tarantula. Give me a bit of Edward Hopper, 17 or 18 years old, and finding uh, myself uh, sort of possessed by the beats or surrealism, strangeness, all of that. Give me that moment where I bought a book of Edward Hopper and went to an Eaton Park in Mentor, Ohio, and opened the page to the gas station that he did. On the right is the mobile gas station with the reds and the light coming out of it, the, uh, uh, the artificial light. And on the left-hand side, split uh, with a road in between is the woods. Um, that being the summer that I was working at a gas station and suddenly realizing that the place that I worked at was a subject of art, that it could be, if not beautiful, at least revelatory. I'm pretty sure by then I had found his Nighthawks, uh, 
and that may have been when I had a print of it on the wall in my bedroom, and that may have been uh, my old bedroom at home, and that may have been the reason I bought the Hopper book in the first place, because I already knew about images like Nighthawks. I already felt that image. Uh, but give me a bit of Edward Hopper, what he taught me. Give me his early Paris paintings where he's figuring himself out before he gets back to America and does magazine illustrations. Uh, give me that picture that he did of a outdoor cafe in Paris where you see the sort of genre characters, someone, uh, a woman who may well be a prostitute, or uh, the old uh, flaneur, or uh, the guy, the old customer who's just there smoking, or the people who are there with their friends. And in the middle of them is, you might say, Hopper's uh, self-portrait, the clown in the middle who doesn't belong on either side. I think he's right in the middle of the painting, isn't he? Uh, he doesn't belong on either side. He doesn't belong with any of those people. And give me that last image of Hopper, one of the last things he did, he did, I think, where he pictures he and his wife, who was also a painter, uh, on a stage, on a impossibly high stage. The angle of the uh, painting is strange. Um, and they are both... Uh, they're both shown as being clowns. They're both kind of bowing and doing their gesture. And uh, that was an early idea of Hopper's and a late idea of Hopper's. The creative person as the clown, the outsider, the person who, uh, at least in a painter painter's sense, is not an entertainer, but who sees, uh, who maybe is like the Lear, the, the fool in King Lear, the one who sees things, the one who can only say them sort of at a slant, as Emily Dickinson would say, and uh, who most people only see as the fool, but who somehow sees the underside or the real side or just another vibrant side of things. It's not really about true and false, is it? It's just about different vibrancies, different vibrations. Give me a tarantula, indeed. Uh, give me a child who is five and almost six, who still doesn't quite understand time. I say that we can go there in 20 minutes or in two hours, and she'll count to 20 or she'll count to two and say, all right, let's go. Um, Give me a child going uh, five, going on six, who doesn't quite understand time or the calendar yet. It's not all quite there. And imagine what that's like. Um, you don't quite know. You know that you're starting kindergarten in a month or a week or two months or whatever it is. Or over the summer, when summer's end, you will start kindergarten. But imagine not quite knowing exactly what that means, and being apparently at the will and the whim of these people who do know what that means. Imagine being a child who really likes her cartoons, whatever shows she has on, and she's told, you will watch this for an hour or two hours, and not quite knowing exactly what that means. It's a stretch of time. You know that it's longer than a minute. Um, just not having a handle on that. Imagine at five or six, five going on six, being immensely intelligent, very good with words, nearly reading, um, saying the most marvelous things throughout the days and weeks that you spend with her, uh, but still not being able to reach that thing without someone's help, not being able to get uh, toast out of the toaster without someone's help, still being dependent in a way that you really don't want to be dependent anymore. Imagine being five and almost six and saying, uh, what is this that I've heard about 
a thing called boarding school where your parents aren't around and you have to say, well, there are still people who are in charge, who are around, who are adults. Imagine being on the cusp of understanding yourself, of realizing exactly who you are and what you're capable of, but then realizing I'm still almost, I'm still only just almost six. Um, and that feeling of what that must be like, um, a feeling, a great sense of urgency and awareness of one's own abilities and one's own interests and one's own likes and dislikes, leaning this way and that, and realizing this is something I really like to eat. This is a, a color or a show or a picture or a kind of day or a time of day. Or this is a kind of person that I really do like. And this is that version of all of those things that I do not like. And I know these things. I have dreams. I have nightmares. Um, I have all these preferences and ideas and and words crystallizing in my head and ideas, but I'm still mostly, basically, uh, without a great deal of power. There's the old joke uh, by Louis C.K., who I guess you're not supposed to quote anymore, but still, uh, when he says uh, that he's walking down the street with his daughter and she's trying to tell him something urgently, and he is trying to get somewhere and he is dragging his two kids along and he's carrying something else and doesn't want to hear what she has to say and, and she ends up saying something like, sometimes dogs are brown. And Louis C.K. says, uh, it's on some level, nothing she says, nothing my child says up to a point actually matters. Um, and imagine perhaps being slightly aware of that as a child. No matter how much your parents who love you dearly uh, want you to believe otherwise, imagine just being aware of yourself growing into new things all the time. Give me a tarantula. Give me a drive back to Ohio, north up Route 11, from where I'm living now. And knowing all that I know about uh, the history of religion, which uh, isn't much, but might be more than most, who knows. Um, and given all I know about uh, science, which, it, which isn't much, which is much less indeed, um, so that I know th some idea of, of a god up there waving a wand um, and uh, hitting the presto button and doing things isn't really my idea of how God created the world if God created the world at all in any way that we can imagine. But still, give me those drives up to Ohio where everything flattens out at some point and you're on Route 11 going north and it's not a major freeway. It's not a toll road. And so there are hardly any cars there. You can stay in the right lane and put your cruise control on at 60 for probably about an hour or two and not have to uh, adjust that at all and just see a sunset or a sunrise if I'm leaving Ohio um, or just a afternoon, a fall afternoon, a winter afternoon, a summer afternoon, just the sight of something of a, of a field where light is caught somehow and just imagine God however you imagine God, if you imagine God at all, up there with the wand and the presto button and apparently doing whatever it is that God is doing. And suddenly God sees that same thing, land flattened out, God leaving Pittsburgh and going up to Ohio, uh, as I am doing, and leaving the hills and leaving all the winding and suddenly everything flattens out and there's that spray of light, and there's that field, and there's the long distance. And even God thinks in that moment, 
I had no idea that would quite do that. That's not what I expected. And that is beautiful. Um, give me a tarantula. Give me a good droning musical instrument, something like a, a hurdy-gurdy, a harmonium, a concertina, something that a friend of mine at synagogue can play, but I cannot remember the name of it, something that uh, can get you going in a good meditation. Give me one of those old Bronze Age horns that have been dug up in Ireland out of a peat bog. Um, one of those things that uh, is of no practical value whatsoever. It's not going to uh, call people to worship. Um, it's not going to uh, sound your army to go into battle. It is something else. It is for another purpose. Uh, give me the, uh, the bullhead. Uh, I believe it was called a, a riton. Am I getting that term right? Um, from Crete that my wife and I saw in New York some time ago, which again was of no practical value whatsoever, uh, but was of ceremonial worth. And I think that's the same thing too about the Bronze Age horns. Um, I think of uh, five or 10 seconds or so on a, on a Led Zeppelin best of that's just called LA Drone, a wonderful droning that isn't part of any blue song, acoustic song, any sort of uh, um, outlandish or showing off bit of Jimmy Page doing a solo, just a, a droning that gets into and crawls up your spine like the image of the snake climbing up your chakras. Give me a bit of that. Give me uh, the idea, I can't remember the names of the mountains in Spain 500,000 years ago where, where bodies have been found down a, uh, down a shaft and it's believed that those bodies were put there intentionally, that this place was considered sacred somehow and that this was a kind of uh, burial before we had language, before we had agriculture, before we had so many things. There were these people possibly in Spain living near these mountains, living on the edge of, uh, living on the edge of their own ability to survive, you might say. And yet they found this place that was of no practical value. It couldn't fill their stomachs. It couldn't provide shelter for them from the elements. But they found this place and it was special. And perhaps that's what they did. They dropped these bodies down this shaft into this burial place and give me the little rose-colored stone that it took how many thousands of hours uh, by someone who lived at that time. Thousands of hours that could have been spent doing something, again, practical, getting food, making shelter, taking care of someone uh, who was injured. But instead they made sort of uh, uh, sort of, well, it's larger than an arrowhead. It's something that would fit in the palm of your hand. And of course, archaeologists being nerds like the rest of us, it's been nicknamed Excalibur. Give me something like that, that is sort of the visual or the, the, the weight equal in your hand of a good droning sound, a sort of wham that can go. Uh, Tibetan monks singing om, uh, will get you right to the center of that. Uh, give me a tarantula. Give me the realization that I will probably never sit down and talk with another person really deeply and really completely about Johannes Vermeer. And give me the realization that that's okay. And the idea that I may never even see one of his paintings in person as it is. You're always shocked to see, or at least I am, in a documentary, they'll show you uh, the milkmaid or whoever it is, the astronomer. Um, 
hanging on a wall in a museum and you'll see other people standing around it. And for scale's purpose, you realize that is small. Look at that. He spent all his time doing that. Uh, and I don't know, just give me that idea that someone like Vermeer will live for me my entire life almost entirely in reproductions, in copies of copies, of uh, sightings on videos of what it looks like hanging there on the wall. Uh, give me all of Vermeer's women standing in front of a window on the left that's usually opened, uh, doing whatever it is they're doing, balancing scales, reading letters, writing a letter, uh, perhaps being seduced by a man who's got a little craft of wine there. Give me all the clues that of uh, the things that may have been uh, in Vermeer's dining room, or just the uh, just the props that he had, like a like someone at a playhouse that he had in his room where he did his painting. The uh, chairs with the little lion heads at the tops or uh, on the legs. Um, all the drapery, all the, the uh, all the blankets, all the heavy stuff that's sitting on tables or on desks, or the uh, the trompe l'oeil uh, curtains that are opening out onto a scene for you to look at, um, or just the girl with a pearl earring just existing there, turning around and looking at you uh, in space. Uh, there's no surrounding to her at all, no background. She's just standing there, turning, looking over her shoulder at you. There's uh, that that portrait that Van Gogh did of Eugene Bach, where, or all the portraits he did at that time, where it's stars that's behind a person, or um, just crazy uh, patterns. Uh, fluid lines and such, or just what he would put behind his own self-portraits, uh, the kinds of things you would never actually see behind a person. It's kind of the same thing, Vermeer, just putting a girl there looking back over her shoulder at you with those eyes, and with nothing there, with nothing in the background, and that is compared to all of his other work, where the room is defined where there are shelves and things on the floor and tiles and examples of all the fine glasswork and and cups and dishes and food and bread and things that he would have been familiar with. And of course, always the glazed window that is almost always opened. And what is it they are looking out at? And give me the question, too, of How many things do we experience throughout our entire lives in the way that I have just described, Ramir? You become entranced by a book. Let's think of Hemingway, Key West, or the Spanish Civil War, or uh, World War I uh, ambulance driver getting wounded, um, or literary Paris. How many of us will ever actually go to Key West, or go to Paris to take a Hemingway tour, or go to a place, uh, an Italian hospital, where Hemingway may have been when he was there? Um, how many of these things will only be alive in our minds, and isn't that okay? Um, there's the image of Wallace Stevens, who I don't believe ever left the United States, aside from some camping trips that he took when he was a young man to Canada, uh, receiving packages from a friend of his in Ceylon. And he would write back to his friend, or he would write back to somebody else later that day saying, I have just been to Ceylon, because whatever it was he was given. Uh, was wrapped in newspaper from the area, or he would receive fruit from somebody, and he would say, I have traveled to that place now. 
I have been to this place because I have received a gift from it. And there's a sense, again, the weight, the heft of it in your hand of having been somewhere. And this is a insurance executive in New Haven, Connecticut, who walked to work every day and came home every day. And on his way to work, he would write his poems in his head and apparently would dictate them to uh, his secretary. And you want the uh, memoir of his secretary. And then uh, he would dictate them and that would be it. And that's how he would do his poems. And he would not leave New Haven very often, except for the time that he did go to Key West and got in a fight with Ernest Hemingway, a brief fight, I think, that Hemingway won. But just think of all the, all the classical or any music, really, that we know. How many of it will we ever see performed live? How, how much of it will we ever see how it's actually done? How much music will just live as sound in our ears, not as things that we actually see being made and performed. Think of the stories, you can just hear it in the last 24 minutes that I've been doing now, the stories and the affection and the anecdotes about artists and writers and even my own past self um, that I'm basically just making up. I mean, it's a form of its own artifice. I don't know these people. I'm pretty sure that if I had met T.S. Eliot while he was alive, I wouldn't have gotten along with him. Um, but his story, a boy from St. Louis who vacationed in Massachusetts, who ended up in England marrying the wrong woman so he didn't have to go home to his parents, ending up in Paris uh, or going to Paris before then, spending the rest of his life in London. Uh, the experience I had of going to the church that he attended in London and knowing that sometimes he was the usher there. Sometimes he would stay after Mass. There's that line in James Joyce's letters where he says, I was in London and uh, I think Elliot was around the corner cleaning up after everybody left. Um, I felt a great sense of reverence and hushed uh, feeling sort of being there where he had been, where he had gone every week. I know what a difficult time he had before he found the religion that he found. And no matter what, how, how much I disagree with the conclusions he came to and the cultural criticism and all of that, the idea of a Christian society and all the rest, and his weird uh, medieval mind that he had to latch on to in order to keep himself sane, um, I still felt very close to him there, very, very close indeed, because in a hundred years, if anyone is listening to this, uh, I wonder what crazy thing they will think I latched onto to keep myself sane, not just converting to Judaism, but what, whatever else it would have been. How much of these things, especially with Netflix and YouTube and art, artist reproductions and rumors and memes and all of these things, how much of what we love and imbibe, what, what is it actually? Is it something we need to see in person? Or can it be something that we only hear about? Um, it's an incredible thing to think about. The, uh, to get back to Vermeer, it's the, uh, the coffee table book. Um, what is so bad about someone never knowing about the history of art, but suddenly seeing the coffee table book, or knowing very little about Dante, but suddenly watching the movie Seven and being clued in to something about Dante or Bach and his, the music of his that is used in that book or in that movie as well in Chaucer. And give me as well the sense that most things that we experience are experienced in the mind. They are things that we imagine, even memory. Uh, a thing happens once, 
and but where it really lives if you think about it uh, is in memory how it is that we decide to remember it how we decide to remember an event and how we decide to keep it to ourselves or retell it but in a wider sense I think of uh, the inordinate uh, nostalgia that I feel for Britain for the time that I spent in Scotland and Orkney um, considering that I've probably spent less than 30 days altogether in any of these places it's pretty incredible how attached to them I feel how attached I felt to them going there and how sad I was to leave and how I still feel more attached to that ground to those places uh, than I do to anywhere that I've ever lived and so give me what that sense is that I that I gather most people know but maybe just haven't maybe just haven't put in quite this way that maybe that is what most things are I would love to live in England I would love to live uh, in a town like Salisbury where you have the cathedral there and the and Stonehenge a little further out I would love to live in the in the city of Kirkwall on mainland Orkney and in both of these places I would have to start my own synagogue I suppose but uh, the sense that I never will probably ever live in these places but maybe what I am just meant to do is to ponder them, to make of them in my mind what I can. And as I've said about love in many episodes now, maybe it's just a matter of longing um, that we think of the art that we like, the painting and the music and the movies and think of the sports that we have intense memories of for me it's baseball as a child or the horrible time I had uh, pretending I p could play soccer um, and you get the sense of it from something like Ken Burns documentary about baseball that it isn't even something that you directly experience at some point it is memory it is an impression it is a bit of instinct and give me the sense of, of what that is how many things do we experience every day that uh, are in an academic sense or in a practical sense in a spreadsheet sense they are incomplete they are imperfect and yet they are the things that get us by they are the things that we collect they are the real things that we use over and over a snatch of a song here and there two or three lines of poetry remembering seeing a painting um, remembering what it was like to play baseball it was so nice to leave uh, a museum today with my daughter and to have her say it smells like it just rained now I think she said that to me before um, and I'm sure she's thought that before but it was it was said with such uh, ultra awareness what uh, it was incredible um, how many events like that will she be able to recall just by a smell just by a, a glance of something of someone across a restaurant 50 years from now this is really why I come down to really being I depend on academic study of history or of religion or of whatever it is but it's interesting to come around to the point of view that says that that total immersion in a subject and this is this would have been heresy to me 20 years ago but the total immersion in any subject by by a person um, isn't really how that subject lives um, I think I mentioned here the idea of someone just coming across a Vermeer they don't know anything else about painting or about Vermeer 
but they are caught on that image and they never forget it. Um, the coffee table book, that whole thing. Uh, give me a sense of what that is, of how things survive and live that has no real bearing on one's education or on one's degrees or on what any of that can do for your bank account or your belly or your the kind of house you have or the kind of car you drive or the kinds of details that people who see you in the store might notice. Um, the things that actually last, the things that support our lives as we go along. I wonder how much of them are just colored over and quite brilliantly painted over with just an impression, a personal impression, a personal nostalgia, a personal bias to be, uh, to just exaggerate the idea, a completely personal bias. Um, it's an incredible way to think of things, how many things, how many how many powerful things that support our lives are just these private, strange, little revelations and crutches and sense memories and just things that only we will ever know about. Um, give me a tarantula. Give me the music of Dead Can Dance. Uh, if you know their music. Give me their music from the early 80s, their very earliest stuff, where I think they were they were also in London, and doing this sort of dour and gothy and synthy stuff. And give me that moment where Lisa Gerard suddenly realized what the hell she could do with her voice and where it could go and how they could just go into 15th century music. Um, I believe it's their, their album called Ion, A-I-O-N, that just floored me as a high schooler. And I was listening to it in the car again with my daughter and floored me again. But of course, it sounds strange to her. She's never heard it before. And she says, what is this Halloween music? What is this spooky music? give me the experience of that kind of that kind of growth. I have a weird sense of nostalgia for people's lives that uh, they perhaps don't even have about their own. Um, I've, I've read poetry from the, uh, the poet Laurie Sheck here. That was one of the first things that I did on this podcast. I read from her book, The Willow Grove, which came out in 1996. And I mentioned in those episodes where I read from The Willow Grove what an immense uh, effect that book has had on me. Every time I reread it, it's just a huge achievement. I think it's one of the best books of poetry I've ever read. And someone, uh, an early listener to this podcast, uh, emailed me to say that he knew Laurie Sheck. He studied under Laurie Sheck. I think it, at NYU or at the New School is where she is. And he gave me Lori Sheck's email address, so I was able to send her a fan letter. And it was hilarious because I asked her if I might be able to interview her about this book that meant so much to me. And her answer basically was, uh, I wrote that book uh, in the early 90s. It was published in 1996. I don't really remember much about that book. It's old news as far as I'm concerned, and I don't know what. She said it much more nicely than that, but uh, it's old news. Uh, it's this huge thing in my mind, but it is old news even for the person who wrote it. But I have this, uh, I think it's partly because I had a friend who was really into The Cure and a lot of music like that and Dead Can Dance back in the late 90s. And he lived uh, in Cleveland, or in one of the neighborhoods of Cleveland, 
and I went to see him one winter, and nothing really amazing happened. Um, I think I spent a night or two at his house. He was living with his dad, and I do remember he was a great fan of Clockwork Orange, so we would watch some of Clockwork Orange, and then we would play Beethoven's Ninth and play Mario Kart uh, late into the evening, things like that, and I still thought, or I was trying to be a Catholic back then, and it was the winter time, and I told him the next morning that I, I was going to go to church, and he didn't know where the nearest Catholic church was, but we found out where it was, and I was able to walk there and then walk back to his dad's house, and that morning, for some reason, has always stayed with me as being some kind of I don't know what, uh, you're 17, um, yeah, it would have been 17, and you spend a night away from your parents' house uh, with a friend, and it's winter, and I, I don't know why it would have stuck with me, but it always did. Maybe it was because I was on the cusp of, uh, in a year going away to a college that I dropped out of, and a year away from... Uh, falling in love that ended disastrously because that's what happens when you're 18. It was before all of that happened, before I really knew what I wanted to do as a writer. It was only that I wanted to write. Perhaps it was just before all of those things. And for some reason, I associate that kind of day, that kind of scene with London in the early 80s and Dead Can Dance. I have no idea what they were actually doing in London at the time. Um, it's the same feeling I had um, right around the same time coming upon a book about the Red Hot Chili Peppers and seeing a picture of the band members when they were all, must have been around my age, 18 or so. And they were in, there's a picture of them in Los Angeles, maybe it was Venice Beach. And they're there with a young woman who apparently died uh, soon before they made it big. And... Uh, there's just a kind of nostalgia or sweetness or beforeness, again, before anything ever happened, before anybody knew who they were. Here are just these kids who are doing these creative things, and here is a girl who was their friend who died and who they loved very much. And there's this photo of them, and it's all very sweet. The same idea is with Eddie Vedder when he is uh he hears about a band who needs a lead singer and he's just surfing in san diego and he just sends a tape up to them um singing i believe some of his poetry maybe over their music and he's just some guy surfing and nobody knows who eddie vetter is nobody knows who the band that they're about to start is it's just some guy and uh it's something that's always moved me um, a great deal. Give me a tarantula. Give me a bit of Primo Levi, if you can. Some of the hardest thoughts, some of the most precise thoughts about the Holocaust that I know, and this is something I realized before I ever even considered converting to anything, uh, Primo Levi being one of those stars in the firmament of uh, realizing that one of the things the Nazis did, one of the things they were extremely good at, one of the things I suppose that all people who are prejudiced are very good at is uh, debasing the people they hate by forcing them to, to uh, participate in their own debasement. In the sense of Primo Levi, what he's talking about are the Sonderkommando, the, the, uh, the groups of Jewish prisoners at the death camps whose job it was to... Uh, clean up the gas chambers to, well, to, to help assist in hurting new 
arrivals to the gas chambers of uh, convincing them to remove their clothing and to get them into the gas chambers to take the bodies out once it's done, once they're dead, and to, uh, through that awful sequence of conveyor belts and whatever it is, uh, get all the bodies up to the ovens and the crematoria and turn them into ash. Uh, fellow Jews, fellow, at that point, fellow human beings. Um, and the, the genius, you might say, the horrible genius of the Nazis to do a thing like that, to to sort of stumble into the situation and realize the only answer to it was, uh, none of us are going to be able to do this. Let's make them do it. Let's make them clean up the mess that we have made. And that's one of his prime insights, realizing that that is what hatred does when hatred is matched with, uh, with power that has no check in reality. Uh, the, the remark that he heard, or was it, uh, was it the other fellow who heard it, where uh, someone says to one of the Nazis, I will survive and tell everyone what you've done. And the guard says, uh, no one will ever believe you. Um, and you see this everywhere. Uh, what was the thing that I was just, we were just watching um, about the, uh, the Sinti and Roma who were living in, in Nazi Germany, uh, the ones who survived uh, their own uh, attempt, the, the Germans attempted their extermination as well. Uh, people did not want them, uh, these so-called gypsies, living in cities among them because they had their silly views about them. And so they push them out of their neighborhoods and they make them live on the edge of town where there's nothing, uh, no place for them to live. And then you say, look how dirty they are. Uh, that's the kind of thing you do. Uh, you force people into a situation where they can only be uh, dirty or quote unquote uncivilized. And then you say, look, I told you about that. Look at that. Um, it's incredible what we do to each other. The other thing that that Primo Levi seems to have been quite quite able to see clearly is that uh, the the real story of an event like the Holocaust of the Shoah. Uh, cannot be told because the real victims, the the ones that can really tell the story, are the ones that are dead. The ones who survived can tell a horrible story, but they can't tell you the whole story. I think the worst thing I ever heard, uh, it was uh, connected to the, the writers and the writer and director of the movie called uh, son of Saul, which is about a man who was in the Zonderkommando. Um, and he says something like, uh, there was a, a member of the Zonderkommando who survived, there were very few who did, who survived the war and uh, I believe moved to America and uh, went on with his life. And you can imagine just how you do that um, after having to process bodies uh, because how you have to become used to it or not used to it, but force yourself through it, how much you have to love life, how much you have to want to survive, or how much you have to deaden yourself to believe that you should survive um, in order to maybe get out, maybe get out, maybe start a new family, maybe move, maybe find new happiness. And this guy was able to do it somehow. Uh, but at the end of his life, when he knew he was dying, I believe the story said that uh, what he asked more than anything else um, 
was that he be cremated and that his ashes be taken to the remains of the crematoria where he had worked 70 years ago so that he could be with those be with those people that in some ways uh, he whose company he never really left those people who had to do that most horrible work of being involved with the murder of so many people, uh, of people who believed as you did and you realized that you would have been on the other side of it had they been in yours. Um, we need to spend more time, I think, uh, thinking about impossible situations. Um, ter you know, wake up in the morning, go to CNN.com, go to FoxNews.com, go to MSNBC.com, go to Twitter, go to Facebook, and just see all the all the nitpicking, all the small criticisms, all the pulling at a thread, all the uh, I, I don't I don't even know how to to describe it. Um, there's a grain of sand on the palm of your hand, wipe it away. Just that, that observation repeated a thousand times. I think if we spent more time thinking about impossible situations, situations in which uh, you, you are damned if you do, damned if you don't, where you are truly powerless in a way, impossible, powerless situations. I think this is where the Greek tragedies do it so well. Um, it's a tragedy, however you want to describe it, define that word, because there is no way out. And as parents or as people who have to work or as people who have to make a living or as people who need the requirements of education or a house or a car or shoes, or um, uh, I said education already, whatever it is, um, the feeling of being trapped. Um, what, what if we stayed with that feeling, that impossible situation feeling, rather than, you know, uh, immediately jumping up and getting in line with what our tribe supposedly is uh, against whatever tribe we are supposedly against. What if instead of making teams immediately and screaming at the other teams, we actually thought about how most of us, most of the time, through nearly all of history, have been caught in various impossible situations. I don't mean that that would suddenly make life roses, but uh, it might... Uh, it might help. And the other thing Primo Levi said that was very good is that uh, we can't, obviously, uh, this, this is perhaps one reason why people deny the Holocaust, um, we can't comprehend it, we can't make sense of it, it's too much. It, it, it is all just too much. But what we can do is we can sympathize, humanize, um, turn into a stage play or a movie, something like Anne Frank. And maybe that's okay, that sometimes that's the best we could do. That if we can find one person, one life, one story, one uh, situation to really latch on to, to make a symbol of, of all the rest of it, um, maybe that's enough, maybe that's fine. Maybe that's our way of doing the impossible situation. I don't really understand either the 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 impression or the idea that wants to uh, deny the Holocaust. To me, that's like denying high school. I mean, what what do you mean? Do you mean that uh, 
first period never happened, or gym class, or standing outside waiting for the doors to open, or getting your license at 16, or uh, running for class president never happened. I'm which one of those things, because the Holocaust is, um, it's not one thing. Uh, you can't deny the thousands and thousands of things that went into the Holocaust. Uh, the camps, the cities, the trains, uh, all the people from the different cities, all the uh, bureaucrats living in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, all the small situations, all the different iterations of what a camp or just what a, an execution might be, Auschwitz as compared to um, some city uh, in Poland or Lithuania, where the locals are just given free reign to do whatever the hell they want. Um, so that's, that's another thing entirely. So give me a tarantula. Give me an old map. Um, the first things I did uh, as a child, I couldn't walk out and immediately start writing poetry. What I did, I was, uh, I loved my crayons and my markers. And one of the things I loved to do, my parents were both teachers, they had access to old Rand McNally maps, the book maps and the, the wall maps. And I would spend my time as a child uh, copying those maps and then coloring in the countries, the color that they were in the book or on the map. And at some point, I think I even tried to uh, do that with an entire world map with many, many pieces of paper taped together. And I realized that continued as I got older, when I lived in by myself in Pittsburgh. And then I met my wife, and we lived in California, and then in Brooklyn, we had maps all over the walls. We had uh, maps of places we hadn't been to, but that we wanted to go to. We had the maps of places we had been to, uh, New York City subway maps, and such things. Um, and after traveling a bit to London and to Athens, and after having planned other trips to places like uh, Prague and uh, or getting the wonderful ordnance maps that, uh, that they have in Great Britain, where you can see a field down to, you might say, its fences, or the wonderful London A to Z, where you can see all of London, you might say, uh, down to its telephone booths. Um, maps are still there as a thing. Um, I don't think as a certain thing, but just as an illustration of something that can pretend to contain so many things. And what's interested me is that the, the maps that we had from our traveling were the ones that are made of Tyvek, that are rip-free or are laminated. And so for a long time, uh, after my daughter was born, we would bring those maps out for her to look at and to play with because she could chew on them. She could handle them and she could try to rip them as hard as she wanted to, but she never quite could. And so she got very interested in, as she got older and became more aware of what exactly this is, what, uh, how you put a city or a country onto a piece of paper. Amsterdam is the one now in, in the works. How you, uh, can see a video of Amsterdam and its canals and the boats going up and down the canals. And then you see a flat map and you can see those veins of canals going around the center of the city. Maps are the wonderful thing. Or really nowadays, it's not the map you can hold. It's the map on the phone that you can hold and zoom all the way out and make the world spin. And isn't that one of the coolest things in the world. Give me a tarantula.
Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.